Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of January, St. Evans is supporting Remake, a community of fashion lovers, women's rights advocates, and environmentalists on a mission to change the industry's harmful practices on people and our planet. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that has been trained, I mean, trained, doesn't even capture it. It's indoctrinated (laughs) to believe that the best outfits consist of a mixture of wovens, knit, and texture. I'm your host, Amanda. And why, why am I literally incapable of wearing an outfit that is entirely knit or entirely woven or just one fabric? Well, that's because of the years I spent as a visual merchandiser for a large fast fashion brand. And my friends, texture, color, and pattern, you got to mix that up if you want to get a good score on your performance review. (laughs) This is episode 114, and today you'll be meeting two members of the Clothes Horse community, Michelle of Gentle Vibes Vintage and Jessica of Vino Vintage. We're going to be talking about our experiences as visual merchandisers in the fast fashion industry. So what is visual merchandising, also called retail merchandising? It's a job you probably don't know about unless you've worked a lot of retail yourself, but Every time you go into a store, you're experiencing the end result of a lot of hard work. If you spot a captivating outfit on a dress form or you've shopped a table full of items that just seemed to belong together, if you've ever bought an entire outfit from a mannequin, visual merchandising has worked its magic on you. Visual merchandising uses floor plans, color, lighting, fixtures, displays, outfitting, signage, and so much more to persuade customers to open their wallets and spend more than they were probably planning. Think of a visual merchandiser as the person behind the magic of shopping. Sure, the designers, you know, well, they they designed the product and the buyers, you know, they They bought the product, but the visual merchandisers are the ones who make us want to buy it. It's hard work. It never pays well, and you have to deal with customers. You also get, strangely, a lot of scratches, cuts, and splinters along the way. Your feet always hurt. You're pretty tired and stressed out, yet it's a job you kind of love. 
More than 67% of visual merchandisers in the United States are women, and the top 10% of highest paid retail merchandisers earn as much as, this is according to a website, and they literally use the term as much as $36,000, which is not a lot of money. I would argue that the low pay for this important and highly skilled slash creative job is a result of retailers, you know, not wanting to pay anyone, particularly their employees working in the stores. And of course, women comprise a big chunk of the workforce in this role. And you know, people don't like to pay women either. Michelle, Jessica, and I are going to share the great parts, the hard parts, and everything in between. And we'll also be talking about scammy job interviews and why no one, not even you, should ever work for free. But before we jump into that conversation, I have a great hotline message for you. Seriously, I love this message so much. It gave me so much to think about, and I have a feeling it will do the same for you. Our caller, Sarah, works in the tech world, and she's going to tell us about the pressure to upgrade our stuff and how she has come to terms with it. So let's give it a listen. Hey, Amanda. Um, My name is Sarah. I live in Seattle, Washington. I kind of wanted to share my story. Um, And I think what my experience has been aligned so well with so many of the topics that you cover. So um, I... I'm currently working tech, um, and I work kind of in product management. Um, but prior to that, my, my training in school was I was an industrial design student and industrial design is like furniture, house items, toys, like kind of any physical material object. Um, and because of that, I just like loved beautiful objects. Like I got into it because I loved, you know, aesthetics. I loved functionality. I loved how things, you know, really worked in your life. And I wanted to get better at that. Um, And kind of separate from that, I grew up kind of lower middle income. Um, And when I, and because of, you know, working really hard in school and a lot of other factors, I was able to land like a six figure tech job out of college, which was really overwhelming at first because I didn't grow up with money. I didn't, I never expected to get the tech job. I was completely blown away that I got it. And so I was kind of thrust into suddenly having money and was very overwhelmed. And I think I got very caught up in what my colleagues were buying and what my colleagues, like the life that they had, many of them growing up significantly, significantly more wealthy than I did. And so once I started working, within a couple months of me working there, I would just mention like, oh, I have a French press. And people would say, well, why don't, when are you going to upgrade to my coffee machine that's $6,000. Or I'd mentioned that I drove a used Prius and they'd be like, oh, well, my Tesla's amazing. And it was always like, Sarah, when are you going to upgrade? When are you going to upgrade? You know, you're making good money here. You, sh- you should upgrade. You deserve to upgrade. And I think it kind of got me in this cycle for my first few years of working, um, of never being satisfied with what I have. And I bring up my design background because I think because I grew up lower income, it was kind of the belief of like, okay, I finally, I just, I've always deserved nice things and now I can have those nice things. And, but also the the search for nicer things 
made me really unhappy with everything I had. Like my house never felt done. My closet never felt done. Everything was constantly in evolution, which meant I was constantly dissatisfied and then constantly looking to upgrade as my colleagues would talk about all the time and as others would talk about all the time. Um, and so I, I bring this up because I love your episode. You talked about Marie Kondo a couple times and the pressure that we put on our objects to fulfill all of our, you know, does it spark joy? I think as an industrial designer, I really resonate with that because I'm like, yes, everything should be perfect. Everything should spark joy. And I think uh, what I've been learning as I've been trying to monitor my consumption is that I own so many things that work so well. And up until I, I started doing a no buy year in 2020, uh, two, it's January 2022. So it's been like three weeks of not buying anything new and, you know, not buying much at all, actually, like not buying clothes, bags, shoes, jewelry, makeup, like not buying anything. Um, it's been fascinating to me how much I appreciate my things. I truly would have looked at something before and thought, oh, this isn't perfect, though. It could be optimized. It could be better. And I think that's like the tech worker in me is always looking for optimization and growth. But I think slowing down and just really appreciating what I have uh, has kind of blown my mind of how good my stuff is. It's working great. And maybe it doesn't like spark joy, but I think it's sparking joy now because I'm like, oh, maybe it, the colors are not the one I wanted, but like, it's great. It actually works so well. And I spent every day just looking at it being like, oh, it's not enough. It's not good enough. It's not. Maybe I should I should push myself to deserve better. And I just think all of these things have been so inspired by the podcast, too, of thinking about consumerism, you know, thinking about decluttering, how easy it is to declutter, how usually I would just declutter something, you know, if it didn't spark joy. And now it's like, actually, I think I can make this spark joy. Um, and I've been really surprised by that. So thank you so much for all your work. I love it. I just became a Patreon subscriber. So thank you, Amanda. I told you that Sarah recorded a great message. And I have to say, after listening to it, I took a few moments to walk around my house just to appreciate the things that I have and, and the ways in which they make my life better. Like, for example, I'm looking at it right now, the large computer monitor that Dustin bought at the Goodwill and then passed on to me after he bought an even larger, fancier new one. It's not fancy. It's definitely obsolete in the eyes of many. Some might say it's a little bit of an eyesore. And yet, it makes my life so much better. I'm not slumped over my laptop all day, hurting my back and neck, and I get the magic of two screens, which allows me to move between projects more seamlessly. It actually makes me more efficient, and I think it helps with my anxiety. I'm super grateful for it, but, you know, it's it to me, it feels luxurious, but to a lot of people, it would be like, oh, how old is that thing? As Sarah mentioned, we've talked about Marie Kondo a lot around here primarily in the context of people, you know, dumping a bunch of their belongings at the thrift store and then gradually sort of rebuying new versions of it all, especially during the pandemic. It's so wasteful. It's just, ugh, it's gross. It's sad. And yet we've all, we've all done it. All of you who are listening, me, Dustin, people down the street from me, we've all done it. It's, it's kind of what encouraged, right? Even if we didn't know who Marie Kondo was, we were still already doing it. <sighs> Maybe the real problem is not Marie Kondo's mission and message, which I think is valid. 
I think it's how we're interpreting it. Sometimes I think that expecting our belongings to spark joy puts a lot of unrealistic pressure on both ourselves and our belongings. Spark joy sounds like a lot, right? And for some objects, it just, it seems virtually impossible, no matter how fancy or brand new or expensive something was. Like, I just don't think I'm ever going to feel something as lofty as joy from a cookie sheet or a bed sheet or, you know, a spreadsheet. Okay, I might feel some joy from a spreadsheet, but I'm glad I have them. Otherwise, making those guardian vegetable chicken tenders that I love to have for lunch would be impossible without that cookie sheet or without my bed sheet. I would only feel my mattress against my skin, which is, you know, disgusting. I don't know why it's disgusting. Why did we invent sheets? Why did we invent mattresses that feel disgusting? I don't know. I'm just trying to go with the flow, everyone. But these sheets of all varieties, you know, they do something for me. These items are important to me, and I I don't want to live without them. Maybe the problem is that we are misinterpreting joy or... Perhaps we're just using the wrong word because I I did look for the definition of joy and guess what it is? A feeling of great pleasure and happiness, which is a lot. That's a lot to ask of a potato peeler or a monitor or a toilet. The word joy implies that every interaction with every one of our belongings should thrust us into this state of unbridled ecstasy. And if it doesn't, then it needs to leave our lives. But maybe, how about this? Joy is just seeing how our possessions improve our quality of life just by doing what they were intended to do or what we intended it to do. For example, I use a vintage tin dollhouse as a desk organizer. You know, I needed an organizer for all of my mailing stuff and all my pens and whatnot. And the dollhouse is cute. Do I faint with joy every time I see it? No, but I'm glad it's there. And I like that it represents me and my style. It's cute. It's secondhand. And it makes a surprisingly effective organizer. Like five stars, right? Doing its job making me pretty happy. Maybe not in a like unbridled ecstasy. I don't know if I would call it joy, but it makes life a little bit better, right? I would say that the expectation of joy sets us up for disappointment. I would also say it creates a sense of longing. It encourages us to believe that perhaps this item doesn't bring us joy, but the latest, greatest, most expensive version of it will. And conversely, when we don't have that model of the item, we're doomed to never experience that spark of joy. It's depressing. It doesn't help that now, more than ever, we need an excuse to buy things because we look to things to bring us the joy we once got from people and experiences like traveling and parties and hugs and dates. We're looking really hard for joy right now. And if there's one thing our consumerist culture has taught us, 
It's the joy comes from something new because it gives us that momentary hope that this new thing, this one, will be the beginning of a better life. I would argue we need to stop expecting items to spark joy. We need to replace that phrase with things something like makes life easier, brings comfort, saves time, saves my energy, makes me not have to feel the mattress on my feet, or it's just there for me when I need it. It's not lowering our expectations. It's actually shining a spotlight on the true purpose and value of our belongings. Comfort and reliability are just as impactful as joy because comfort and reliability They make us happy. Give our things some credit for doing what they're supposed to do. And recognize that most of these items will be around long after they have left our homes and lives. So it's important to have a long, happy relationship with them. Even if we're not filled with ecstatic joy every time we use them or around them. Thank you so much for such a great message, Sarah. If the rest of you want to keep this conversation going or start a new one, please record your own voice memo on your phone or computer. That's what Sarah did. And email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world. You can also call the Close Horse Hotline. That number is in the show notes. I love hearing new voices on the show, and I can't wait to hear from you. One of the most challenging categories of clothing in terms of sustainable options is athletic wear. Yet you you can't go out there and work out in a pair of jeans or you don't want to go for a hike or a long bike ride in a dress. Although, yes, I've done both of those. I have many regrets about it. Don't be like me. Wear athletic wear to do these things. Active wear isn't a nice to have. It's a need to have, and shopping for it can be so difficult, especially if you're a sustainability-minded, second-hand-first kind of person, which I know you are. There should be a more affordable and sustainable way to purchase premium athletic wear. Well, guess what? I found one, and it's Revive Athletics. Revive Athletics believes clothing should make you feel good when you move, and that starts with how you purchase it. Shopping secondhand is the most sustainable way to shop, and Revive Athletics is committed to providing high-quality, premium athletic wear so you can feel good when you shop and you can feel even better when you move. Everything Revive Athletics sells is very gently used, and they carry a wide variety of sizes from extra small to 5X, and they offer all of the premium brands you've been scoping out, like Lululemon, Nike, Athleta, Girlfriend Collective, you name it. And while a pair of Lululemon leggings would cost you around $100 if you purchase them new, at Revive, you won't pay over $35 a pair. You're getting really excited right now, aren't you? Revive will also buy your gently used athletic wear and athleisure no matter where you are, and they'll send you a prepaid label to ship items into them. 
By keeping your gently used items in circulation, you're helping to reduce their carbon footprint. And that, that my friends, is the hashtag secondhand first lifestyle right there. All items are carefully inspected and cleaned with Defunkify, an eco-friendly detergent made in Oregon. And I know you were wondering about that. Are you glad I told you? Revive Athletics is committed to building and supporting community. They offer classes in their space in Portland, Oregon, and they also donate items to Rose Haven, a Portland day shelter and community center serving women, children, and gender diverse people experiencing the trauma of abuse, loss of home, and other disruptive life challenges. What an incredible place to shop. I mean, I know you're sold now. You're like, tell me more, Amanda. How can I shop? Revive Athletics. Well, if you're in one of my favorite cities, my former home, the place I think of as my hometown, Portland, Oregon, you can shop in person at their store or you can go online at reviveathletics.com no matter where you live. And even better, I have a special offer exclusively for members of the Clothes Horse community. Use promo code REVIVEIT15 to get 15% off your first purchase. And don't worry, I will include that in the show notes so you don't have to run and grab a pencil right now. The next time someone asks you where you got your athletic wear, you can tell them, thanks, it's revived. And know that you made the best decision and saved a heck of a lot of money too. Once again, that's reviveathletics.com. You can also find them on Instagram at revive underscore athletics. Go check it out. I think you're going to love what you see. I spent the first 10 years of my career working for the same company, and I will be honest with you, yes, if I could build a time machine, I might go back and quit that job and go work for another company. I could see that the trajectory of my life may have been different. At the same time, I can't imagine any other path than what has gotten me to where I am right now. If you've been listening long enough, you know I began working in the stores as a part-time seasonal, meaning temporary, sales associate, and soon I moved into management, mostly because I just worked all the time and I worked really hard, and even if no one thought I was cool or they were bothered by the fact that I was a single mom, which yes, they were bothered by that, they still had to admit that I was reliable and worked really hard. So I became a manager, and not too long after, I was recruited to be a buyer at the home office. That actually happened because I was talented, and someone spotted that. After doing that for several years, I realized that I'd had enough. I just, I didn't fit in there. The culture was pretty toxic, pretty mean girly. I just, I I couldn't imagine myself going further there, and I didn't, I didn't want to work there anymore. I was really lonely and unhappy. Fortunately, at that point, I had made so many friends throughout the company because I'd been around for so long that I was able to transfer back into the stores to work on the visual merchandising side of the business. It was a hard job, but I kind of loved it. I kind of hated it too. You know when they say it was the best of times, it was the worst of times? That's how I would describe being a visual merchandiser. I kind of feel like I have a master's degree in fashion and retail at this point because I've kind of worked on all ends of it now. And while I left visual merchandising to go back to buying, I still 
had a lot of fun in those years working in the stores. Last year, I discovered that Michelle of Gentle Vibes was another former merchandising employee of that company. And I kept saying, hey, like you have to come on the podcast so we can teach people about visual merchandising because I know a lot of them don't know about this job and kind of how the magic it's working on them. It just never worked out from a timing perspective, unfortunately. But then... When I found out that Jessica of Vino Vintage was now working as a visual manager for the same company, I knew that the timing was perfect for a conversation with both of them. So let's jump right in. Michelle, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hello, my name is Michelle Bierauer. I own Gentle Vibes Vintage, a little tiny shop. In Ypsilanti, Michigan, it's a funny little place that's next to Ann Arbor. But I've been in the game for 20 years, and this is my sixth year as a brick and mortar. Super fun. Before that, I was a talent buyer for a bar and booked bands for a living, which was interesting and a lot of fun. And kind of miss it sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Until it's not, and then you have to, like, move to California and not talk to anyone for a while. (laughs) And how about you, Jessica? Yeah, so my name is Jessica. Um, I own Vino Vintage, which I've been doing for about two years um, at flea markets and online. I've been working retail for the last, I don't know, eight years or so. So that's kind of been my life and kind of how I got introduced to wanting to start my own business. Um, but I've been, yeah, retail management for the last like five-ish years. So a lot of retail experience, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. I hear you on that. So I brought the three of us together today. We're in each in a different time zone. So this is like some technological wizardry happening right now because we all have something, I mean, we have a lot of things in common, but we have something in common in our work history that I think is really interesting, and I think that it's something that a lot of people don't know very much about, and that is that the three of us all worked in visual merchandising for the same large corporation that has several fast fashion brands under its umbrella. So we're not going to name that company here. Um, I'll just say that I worked as a store merchandising manager, which basically means like I was in charge of the visual merchandising direction for my store. Um We'll go into that more, what that means. But Michelle, why don't you tell us, what did you do in the merchandising realm for this big, evil corporate conglomerate? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was thinking about it today because I follow them on Instagram still. And they have really... I know, I know. And they had like the most... I don't know. The thing they posted today was just spot on for how I felt about the holiday shopping season. (laughs) But... Anyway, um, (laughs) I was a merchandising team lead, which just meant that I stood at the front of the store and greeted every customer while being expected to like magically finish a floor plan that the merchandiser drew out for me. (laughs) I mean, I can't wait for us to go into this because even as being the store merchandiser, If I were going to say one thing about that job and the experience that it carried carried away with me, or at least the emotion that I remember the most from that time, it's that 
I never felt like I could get even close to getting done what I was expected to get done. And because I'm such an overachiever, I was constantly filled with this sense of self-loathing and failure. <laughs> so that's how I would describe my time. I I guess I want to say like almost four years as a visual merchandiser for this company. Um, what about you, Jessica? What's your involvement in visual merchandising? So I'm still currently a visual merchandising manager. Um, pretty new actually to the company, I would say. Um, and it's been interesting. It's, you know, it's hard sometimes cause you know, I love vintage and like secondhand and like, that's what I want my future to be in. But you know, the unfortunate truth is like, I only have so many, not so many skills, but you know, I am a good manager. Um, I'm like leading people, I mean like a team leader. And this is kind of a step I have to take to be able to open my own business one day because mm-hmm. it's all from, you know, coming from me, not like, I mean, I would love to get like a, a loan or just like, you know, someone to invest in my business. But without that happening, um, yeah, I took this job a couple months ago and it's, it's interesting. There are some parts that actually for me aren't so bad. Like the team is really nice and like uh-huh. people I actually work with at the store level are really cool. Um, but I'm, I guess I've worked retail long enough to know that like behind the scenes and like all the corporate and stuff isn't, you know, so nice. And, you know, they don't really care about the people as long as they're making money. Um, <laughs> so, That's a great like, summary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know that and I keep always keep that in the back of my head, my head, but, um, yeah, I mean, I just did my first holiday with them and that was crazy. I just, every time we got more products, I was like, okay, well it has to stop eventually. And there was a point where we just were like sold out of things. Like the store was like, felt like it was half empty, which I was like, okay, I'd rather stuff be selling, I guess, than just be sitting on it and like having to mark it down and, you know, who knows, but, um, yeah, it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's kind of similar to you, Amanda, where I just feel like it can never catch up and never ends. And then it's gotten easier, I'd say so far in the new year, but, um, yeah, it's crazy. I just, the amount of product is insane. It's insane. So let's put a pin in that. Cause I have a lot of thoughts about that and I know we have similar experiences and thoughts. Oh my God. Allocation. <laughs> yeah. Right. But like, before we go into that, I think it's really important for us to explain what visual merchandising is on the retail level and like what a visual merchandiser does because I feel like for as hard as that work is and how much thought and effort and time is going into it, it's largely invisible to customers, right? Like they don't understand that there is someone who is getting up at five o'clock in the morning, going to work and crying about how how are they going to fit all these sweaters into that wall, you know? And <laughs> it's like invisible, right? Like you just don't realize that's like, there's a whole team of people working every day really hard to make the store look nice. But beyond that, put things in front of you, the customer, in a way that will make you want to buy it, that will make you notice this stuff. Because it's true. There are parts of the store that you put anything there, it will sell. There are parts of the store, you put anything there, no one will ever buy it. You know, like you can hide stuff away. And especially for the company that we have all worked for, the stores are so huge and there's so many fixtures and tables and walls and corners and there's so much product 
there are places in the store that are like dead zones where you sometimes will hide things that come in that you're like, why did we get that? <laughs> so I would say, and I want you guys to jump in after this and tell me anything I missed, but visual merchandisers and the merchandising team are responsible for getting that product out on the floor, creating displays, moving stuff around in reaction to sales. Uh, there's all kinds of fixturing and floor sets and, I mean, I, signage and there's just shipment every every day, it feels like. And it's your full-time job to move stuff around, <laughs> basically. Yeah, it sucks. Like, the store I worked at got shipment five days a week and I had to open at seven. And mm -hmm. we were so short on payroll, they had a brilliant idea to make me an operations supervisor so that I can have a key. Wow, that is classic. <laughs> and I would literally be responsible for placing every single new thing, excuse me, that came in in four shops. And I had to have it all like done before 10 a.m., yeah, that's the thing. 10 a.m. is the magic number. I mean, Jessica, I don't know what time your mm -hmm. store opens, but I suspect it's 10. And 10 yes, is like, is. in theory, and this is like, you know, someone told me once that um, the Bible is really successful as, as, a, as a book, as a way of life. It's like, you know, the basis of this entire religion, because a lot of the ideas it puts forth are just completely unachievable for the average person and so it keeps people engaged and because they're constantly trying to achieve this like saintly lifestyle and I feel like for the company we worked for the thing that we were always trying to achieve that never was going to happen well there were two things one was that all of the work on the floor would be done at 10 a.m. when the store opened, which never happened. No boxes visible. No boxes visible, exactly. And number two was that you would get every all the shipment out on the sales floor every week. It was a joke. <laughs> and get all the markdowns. Oh, my God. I know. Such a joke. I mean, yeah. when you talked about the payroll, it really triggered something for me. Um, my whole fashion career began actually working retail for the same company where I was a visual merchandiser. And in the beginning when I started working there, it seemed like we had all the money in the world for payroll. And so we really would get stuff done by 10 and there would be no shipment in back stock. And then with each month, each year, slowly our payroll was eroded to the point where you, I would come in as like the store merchandising manager and there'd be like a department manager there with me and like one or two other people and we would get a hundred boxes of shipment and it, that was when the we're never going to get this done I'm never going to get this done feeling began for me and I mean there would be I was salaried there would be nights I would you know I had to be at work at 6 a.m every morning which also will kill your social life oh 100 percent uh <laughs> Because I'd get up at like four to ride my bike to work and I would get in there at six and I it would be like 6 p.m. when I left and I'd be like, wow, there's still 50 boxes of shipment in back stock. And I was like tagging stuff and processing things and folding and hanging and running around. And I just it was a fun job and it was a hard job and we'll go into that. But I think the thing that really struck me beyond the the ever declining payroll which i'm interested to hear if jessica has this issue at her work but the other thing that struck mm -hmm. me it was just the non-stop flow of new stuff like every day jessica do you get shipment five days a week 
So we get two separate deliveries. One is apparel and one is like home. Mm. So we get apparel almost every day. Um, and then home over holidays, it was anywhere from two or three times a week. Wow. But now it's going down to once a week. So definitely less. It might have a lot to do with um, supply chain issues right now. Because mm-hmm. we got a lot of late receipts too. Um, so almost every day. Maybe it's a little bit less stressful to work as a visual merchandiser in the supply chain era. <laughs> it's like I know. I, I'm like dreaming <laughs> about one day shipments. I know. Seriously. Like that never, I mean, there would be like a couple weeks leading up to inventory in January where we might get lighter shipment, but it was still, it was just, it was just constant. And I think, I think it was you, Jessica said that like there was just so much stuff. And then slowly by the end of the holiday, it was like much lighter in the store. And that's how it would be. Like I, October, November would be you would just be drowning under like sweaters and gifts and yeah. and you were like stuffing them everywhere you could. And then the week after Christmas, it would all go away except for like the really horrible stuff. Yeah, the ugly stuff. Do you guys want to know where that stuff goes? Yeah, tell us. With this particular company? Oh, the outlets. They all went to the two stores I worked at. So I said... <laughs> <laughs> no, not the outlets. Uh, I'm just not going to give away ah. the company by saying this town festival, but I'll just say it's a huge craft fair. And we got all of the sale items that would be dimed out wow. from every single store in the U.S. shipped to us and filled our basement because it was all sold at like 5 15 and 20 bucks outside in a tent. Oh, interesting. Wow. Okay, so just for everybody who's listening and is like, what did she just say when she said dimed out? That's the stuff that's been marked down a few times and still no one wants to buy it. And it in the system, it goes down to 10 cents, but you're not really supposed to sell it for 10 cents. Uh, it just gets pulled off the floor. So that's an interesting point, too, because in the early days of working for that company, we donated that stuff. And then one day it was like, no, now we have to back box it all up and ship it somewhere special. I got to receive it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, because we all know that the things that didn't sell that reached that point were like truly, truly horrendous. Uh, like really ugly or just fit really weird. Yeah. Or no weird colors. Like I remember mm-hmm. we kept getting all this stuff that was like this like salmon color and just no one wants that color. You know, it's bad on every skin tone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, having worked on the buying side for that company, too, I see how all this bad stuff happens. I mean, I could talk about that for like 100 years. Um, the bad colors come because someone put together a trend presentation of what they thought the colors that would tell a story together. But no one's like, oh, but like salmon makes everybody look bad. You know, it's like, no, salmon's part of the mood, right? Like, this is a story about the desert or something like that. <laughs> we're telling you how you feel yeah exactly exactly so that's that's basically what visual merchandising is do you guys think i missed anything there no um we were just responsible for way too much for the amount we were paid yeah 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 agreed agreed yeah pretty much how the store looks is like on the visual merchandiser which i feel like yeah people don't think about they don't also processing the um the shipment yeah like they don't think about that either they think well maybe back in the day they would have like 
processors or whatever. Like I don't have that. It's me or like whoever's working the fitting room will like help me, but it's like very rare. Um, like there's no one who's designated to like back of house. Nothing has changed in that company at all. <laughs> there used to be though. I'm telling you guys, there was this golden era. There used to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I hear. The rumor has it. Yeah. In the aughts. They had all the money in the world. We had a receiver. We had like three managers on duty at any time and like eight openers. The store I worked in had two floors. It was huge and it had a front door and a back door. So you had to have a lot of people working there because our shrink was like out of control. People were shoplifting all the time and would run out one of those doors. But if we had enough people there, it kind of kept it in check. And then they were like, actually... We're only going to have one person working upstairs and one person working downstairs in the morning. And, like, I would say each floor of that store was bigger than my whole house. So it just it just wasn't manageable mm-hmm. in any way. And I think you made a really important call out that you might, another thing you might not notice when you're a customer is in the daytime when you go into a store like that, everybody's doing a project, Like, they have to. Mm -hmm. They have to process shipment and hang things. And how many times have you folded something one day, hung it the next day, and then folded it on Thursday? Mm -hmm. Like, this is how it worked. Because I I don't know how it is for the two of you, but shipment was so unpredictable. And kind of like what we would get was so unpredictable that we – I would sometimes move the same thing three or four times in one week. Oh, yeah. It's not uncommon. Because you have to keep putting the newest stuff – up front and then you get a report at the beginning of the week telling you what you need to be pushing and so mm-hmm. in addition to like the shipment putting out placing all that stuff you're also having to think about the 10 other things that are making a department money and for us we had to like know what those were in every category for every department it was so unrealistic mm-hmm. i think that people would be surprised to hear who have never had a job like this or have never worked retail the amount of analysis and data that you would have to digest and sort of translate every week and use to make decisions, I think it would be shocking for a lot of people because they think retail is just kind of this job for dum-dums, right? And if they know what visual merchandising is, they think we're just like making cute displays or something. Right. And it's like, no, I am like looking at reports and making decisions constantly. And the pressure the pressure to meet your sales plan and everything else is so intense for the little bit amount of money you make. Yeah, I worked at the, – the first store I worked at was the office for the regional merchandiser and regional manager. So they would see the store as like super busy if there was a lot of people in it, which of course there was. It was on a main street in a college campus. So they would translate Mm -hmm. like bodies and noise as sales. And so when the numbers weren't adding up to what they think they should have been, it was insane. And so like they would come in with me in the morning, the first person, and they would be like, okay, we have to switch this, this, and this. And that's before the boxes are in the door. It was so annoying. Uh, Which, uh. Yeah, I so many times I would get direction on Monday, like it would come down from corporate, like, hey, all of these t-shirts have to be in the entry. So they were like hung in the back of the store. So suddenly like a sales associate and I are like folding like it's going out of style. This is not like folding your laundry, right? You're like perfect folding clothes. boards, although I don't want to brag, but oh, I, we'll get to perfect clothes. I, I have nightmares. I just oh. when you, so the, <laughs> yeah, me too. But like you're not, you, I can drop fold really well, but you're f- using folding boards and you're like, like it's precise. So you're 
hang there were like a hundred t-shirts that were hung now we're folding them we do all this work we've rearranged the whole front table it takes three hours the shipment arrives and it's like 17 boxes of denim that have to go on that table and you're like why why like it's a really really challenging feeling (laughs) like it's just a lot of like critical thinking too which i feel like people don't think that we would do in that position but yeah you gotta all make it fit somehow and make it look cute still so absolutely you do it the critical thinking that's a great way to call it's it's like problem solving there's so much crisis management and you really have to be on your toes because you don't usually have enough help there's not enough time there are customers everything is so unpredictable your day especially if you're like a also like a department manager or something and you're working on this and like maybe someone sets off the door and now you got to take them to the back and like there's three hours out of your life or like one time when I was a visual merchandiser a truck ran into the side of our store what and I know I mean this is the kind of stuff you have to deal with right so a truck ran into the side of the store and everything fell off the wall and it was the housewares department. Of course. So everything also broke. Yeah. So I'm like cleaning that all day. But then I can't leave with an empty wall. Like my my district merchandiser's on the phone. Like you've got to fill that in before you go. We can't just leave that there. And I'm like, well, all the product got broken. I don't know what to do. And she's like, fill it with whatever. So then I'm like folding all the quilts I can find in back stock and creating a whole <sighs> wall of quilts like that I'm going to take down in three more days when new inventory arrives. And it was just – just a lot of that all the time when you're a visual merchandiser. It's not like the fun, artsy, craftsy job that you think it's going to be. But I don't know about the two of you, but in my store, uh, working on the merchandising team was like the most sought after job you could have. And people would like stab each other in the back for it. A hundred percent, dude. I remember my last day at the first store I worked at. Like... I had pissed off a customer on the phone on purpose just because I could. That sounds kind of nice. <laughs> like, it felt so good. It was just this like, old, you could tell it was like an old man who wasn't used to being told no. And he wanted me to literally call every store in the company to find this dress because it's like little brat of a daughter wanted it. And I was just like, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And I hung up on him. <laughs> And it was awesome. And so the next day I came in for my shift at 7 a.m., mind you. It was my last day. And the one manager who I heard still works for the company, she's always been like the biggest bitch to me. And she goes, Michelle, we cut your shift today. You can go home. Wow. And I, I like... Did not let her know that I was super pissed off. I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. I have so much stuff to do for my new job. It's crazy, which I did at the time. I got a job as a visual merchandiser and window dresser at a small business in Ann Arbor, and it was amazing. Ah. It was called Middle Earth, and it was owned by this, like, little sweet lesbian couple, and she started it in 68 with her scholarship money because she got a Fulbright and decided it was bullshit. Wow. I think that's a power move. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like I was stoked. Like, hell yeah, I got the morning off and you're the loser that has to like process a hundred boxes of shipment without me. Dude, that story is so classic to my experience working there that like, (laughs) 
I feel like that exact thing happened at my store like 75 times a year. Yeah. <laughs> but my merchandiser loved me. We're still friends to this day. And she made sure that I was rehirable, which actually like five months later was a godsend because I like moved to L.A. Uh-huh. and got the same exact position. But for like three dollars less an hour and arguably the world's most expensive city wait what (laughs) yes so i can't say the name of the store it has a very unique name that has the address in the name without Mm -hmm. like giving away what company this is um but yeah i moved to that store which if you want to get into technicalities oh my dog is crazy um that's Roscoe. He's precious. But anyway, we had three entrances. Oh, yeah, you did. Yeah. Three entrances. And upstairs was the office for everyone that was corporate on the West Coast. So every single day, we would have the uh, merchandiser for the entire company walk through and tell the store merchandiser and the regional merchandiser to tell us to switch everything around. And this is like every single day. And that store. <laughs> so oh, seriously. And that store needed to be perfect closed every single night. I'm not joking. Oh, every single night. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's talk about perfect clothes because we've hinted at it. First off, Jessica, do you ever have to do perfect clothes at your job? Um, uh, The one good thing for... I guess there's a few good things, but one of the things I enjoy currently is I have a set schedule as the visual merchandising manager. So I'm always there like usually seven or 8am. So I never close. So that's one good thing. Yeah. Um, Hell yeah. I don't really do anything like that, but if we're expecting like a visit, then they'll try to do a perfect close. Um, So I feel like out of all the stores within this company, mine is kind of laid back in a way versus where you the one you guys worked at <laughs> so i feel like i don't know i don't want to like describe it too much i feel like i don't give it away but yeah don't like, give it away don't give it away it's like hard to not give it away okay so let's talk about perfect closes and i think jessica also dropped another word that's really important is that sometimes but not always they relate to a visit right that mm-hmm. was the word you used i was like oh man i'm having flashbacks right now so A visit can come in a variety of categories, but it's not a visit from Santa Claus. It's not a visit from Aunt Flo or a visit from a friend. It is a visit. It could be your district manager. It could be your regional manager. It could be someone from home office. And basically, the whole store needs to look perfect for when they arrive. It's the worst. Literally, it's the worst. You know what, Michelle? Describe a perfect close. I bet you've got a lot of choice adjectives. <laughs> okay. So a perfect close is when everyone there's all hands on deck, which, you know, if you're having payroll issues, is five people in the store I worked at. <laughs> exactly. So it's like one person yeah. to clean up the register area and to help with housewares. Someone in housewares women's accessories and men's and we would literally make the store look exactly like you would 
think a picture perfect store would be like all the sizes had to be in order. There would have to be certain height of piles. Everything had to be folded with boards. It was insane. Insane. Tuck the tags. Oh my God. And don't get me started. Like with inventory, we would do perfect closes every night just to like make sure everything had tags. Yeah. So that's the thing. Like in the early days when I worked for this company, we would do a perfect close for a visit and we would do a perfect close before we took photos for floor sets, right? Which we'll get to floor sets in a minute. Which I actually miss. I do kind of miss floor sets, yeah. Yeah. Then it would transition at some point and this is like (laughs) when we're starting to have all these payroll issues to we're also going to do a perfect close every Sunday night just because. And before I was a store merchandiser, I was a department manager and so I often was chosen to manage those closes. So I would work until 11 midnight later with my team, literally refolding everything in the store, putting size tape on the denim, tucking all the tags, putting everything in size order. I mean, it was it was brutal. It was brutal. So like, wait, your other managers let you do this closing thing when you have a kid and they probably are just at the bar? Yeah, that was a really interesting situation. I think I've talked about... That's so shitty. At some point on the podcast, I talked about how I had a boss, well, she was the store merchandiser at the time, who would call me a slut in front of people at work. Like, I would come into a meeting and she'd be like, hey, slut, or yeah, it's because you're a slut. And she was always, like, kind of shitty to me. Um, She also... Well, like there were a few times I had to leave. There was like a three week period where Dylan would just not stop getting head lice. Like it was going around daycare and it was just constant. She's a kid. She's a kid, right? And that same person said to me, Sometimes I just feel like you care about your kid more than your job. And I just kind of looked at her and walked away because um, that would be, in fact, true. But I can't decide if this was real or her just being like a bitch to me. I mean, I'm sorry to use that term, but like, A lot of bitchiness happened in the store I worked in. Um, It's unavoidable sometimes. It it is unavoidable sometimes. She was like, well, you do the best job at Perfect Clothes, so we're just going to have you do it every Sunday night. And it feels like a punishment for obvious reasons. It's like you're literally folding with boards. Like, anyone can do this. Like, I could show you how to do it, and then you could do it next week. (laughs) Yeah, it's anyone can. There is a little bit of a learning curve, I suppose. But yeah, uh, so I was doing those perfect closes every Sunday night. And I mean, I got really good at them, I guess. But the reality is you're only as good as whoever is working there. So since I also wrote the whole store's schedule, I would just schedule all the people who were really great at perfect closes with me. So oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a life hack for all of you um, who get into who get into retail. Um, but the perfect close <laughs> is just It's so silly because I think about the things that that company didn't want to spend money on, like giving part-time people full-time hours so they could get health insurance or like, you know, safer workplaces because like my store had a a huge leak in the back and the whole wood shop was covered with black mold. We still had to work in there. They didn't want to spend money on that, but they were like, hey, let's spend some money every Sunday night to get eight people to fold shit for five hours, you know? (laughs) That'll be a good use of money. Um, And, you know, like, I I think it shows how how skewed that company's values are. I mean, that's just, like, one of a million things, right? But 
the perfect I can't imagine having to perfect clothes every day. Like what a nightmare job. Yeah. And it was at the Hollywood store and I would get out of work at 5 a.m. sometimes and take the train home. Yeah. Super fun. That's horrible. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that one of my favorite brands, New Works, is an official sponsor of Clothes Horse. I've been a fan of New Works for a long time because they have unique prints created by some of my favorite artists. If you're looking for an article of clothing that you can proudly outfit repeat for years and years and still receive compliments from strangers everywhere you go, Newworks is the brand for you. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite Newworks purchases is the Dahlia mock neck dress in the ash and chest print Better Days. Everywhere I go, someone is blown away. I may have recently received a free breakfast taco from a barista just for telling them where I got my dress. I've also found that while all of the Newworks prints are unique conversation starters, all of the pieces themselves are easy to mix and match into an almost infinite array of outfits. Dress them up, dress them down. The outfit repeating potential here is massive. The silhouettes are designed to make you feel good, happy, and just generally full of positive vibes. And Newworks offers sizes extra small through 5X with plans to continue to expand sizing. And oh yeah, they make adorable kids clothes too. Well, now that we've covered all of the aesthetic reasons I love Newworks, let's get into the serious stuff. In a world where it's progress, not perfection, Newworks is constantly striving to do better and better, always with an eye on progress when it comes to sustainability. All Newworks products are made by a small team in limited batches in California. You won't see any ridiculous waste over here. In fact, the company is constantly working to reduce their waste. As part of this commitment, Newworks has been offering packs of scraps for all of you crafty types to turn into your own cool, unique projects. And they even sold a few zero waste pieces recently, which was really so cool and something you just don't see out there as much as you should, right? On top of that, Newworks now offers Full Circle, a resale platform for Newworks products because the idea is that these clothes should remain in circulation and be worn just as much as possible for as long as possible. Newworks is a woman-owned, women-run business. There are no venture capitalists or big investors involved, just a small team of incredibly nice people. And they're working hard to do the best they can for the planet and its people. Everyone involved in creating Newworks products are paid a living wage. And Newworks tries to source all of their materials in the USA and work only with incredibly nice people. Their hope is that every Newworks purchase will be a shining gem in your closet that you will cherish forever or hand down to someone you love. Once again, I'm just so proud and so honored to have this amazing brand as a sponsor of my work here at Clothes Horse. Go see why I love them so much at newworks.com or find them on Instagram at newworks. And that's new N-O-O. Okay, so let's talk about floor sets because you guys both seem pretty excited about floor sets. Yeah. I miss them. Okay, so t- tell everybody what they are. 
So at the beginning of a season, you'll get a book from your regional merchandiser who got that book from whoever I don't remember. <laughs> it's like the sister of the traveling, the sisterhood of the traveling pants. <laughs> And so this company chooses like one of their high performing stores to send people to. I've been to one. It's kind of awesome to like work on one of these things. So you go in, they get everyone hands on deck and it's like these people are salaried and they're taking full advantage of working them 80 hours a week. Oh my God. Yes. I think that's an important thing to call it too is like, you were probably hourly. Jessica, yeah. are you hourly or salaried? I'm hourly. Okay, so I was salaried. Mm-hmm. And if I only worked 60 hours in a week, my manager... My- they make you feel bad about yeah, it. Yeah, it would make me feel terrible. It would make me feel terrible. You'd have to do an overnight. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so they pick one store to like set and then photograph. And then they make a lookbook basically of how the store should look. And they send it to every store. And depending on, like, what your store's architecture is like, um, sometimes, like, regionally, because, like, the West Coast stores will have, like, bathing suits year-round sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. like, obviously, the Midwest store I worked at, we would focus on, like, denim and basics. Mm -hmm. And always with, like, a quirky thing, like a skirt over it. And it always looked bad. But, um... (laughs) Yeah, so we can't dress the mannequins with what we want on it anyway, but I'm getting off track. So they photograph everything, send it to us, and redo our interpretation, and then we'll have a walkthrough with regional merchandisers and managers, and they'll tell us if we nailed it or not. And usually we did, but when you have regional managers that don't like you or your store... They literally make your life a living hell because they can. Yeah. 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 And so that would happen, I think, four times a year. And then in between that, you're doing mini floor sets literally all the time when you get, like, special headphones partnerships or, like, when we started selling records, everyone looked at me. They're like, you're hip. Do you want to design the record shop? And I was like, fuck you. (laughs) Like, what does that even mean? You're not paying me for this. You're stealing my idea for the whole company, but okay, I'll take one for the team. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that where you're, like, putting so much extra work, time off the clock, uh, your creativity into stuff. And, like, once again, you're probably making just above minimum wage. Ten fifty. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, wow. It's so – it's it's weird. It's a weird environment. Like, going back to, like, when I was there and, like – being store merchandiser being the most sought after job in that store like everybody thought you were like living some dream I remember thinking that before I was the store merchandiser like wow it must be so cool to be the store merchandiser and only work Monday through Friday and get to do cool stuff all the time and then I had that job and I was like this is the worst job yeah can I add something to that sure so I've interviewed for this job quite a few times um and like obviously now I have it but like maybe since I don't know the last like three years ish like maybe I interviewed like this probably was like my fourth time interviewing and every time I'd go to like the second interview third interview and then for whatever reason they would choose another candidate right Mm -hmm. I would just always like beat myself up about it and be like oh like you know like this company seems so cool you know that whole thing Mm -hmm. um and 
I had an interview at like a small kind of girl bossy um, boutique, like who aspired to be like the story I work at now. And something she said in my interview that like, I kind of like laughed in my head, but then I felt bad. But then now I don't feel bad anymore. Where she was like, oh, like, you know, what inspires you? Da, da, da. And I would like tell her, she's like, oh, well, I'm so inspired by the store that I work at. And in my head, I'm like, out of all the stores that you can be inspired I by, know. like you choose like this chain and it just kind of made me laugh. And I was like, okay, like, you know, whatever. And then fast forward, like a year later, I'm working here and like, I finally got the job and I, and I like, I was happy. I was excited. Um, but now that I'm doing it, I'm like, sure. It has its hard moments. Like, you know what we were talking about earlier, but at the same time, I'm like, this job's not like that hard like if you have decent like time management and like if you're creative like it's you know anyone can really do it um and I just now I kind of laugh and I'm like I went through like I stressed myself out applying for this job so much not getting it being hard on myself and it's like why like I don't know just like so sought after and maybe it's just the company as a whole like you know with all of our the different stars that they have it just seems like so exclusive or something I don't know and now I'm kind of like, oh, like I'm fortunate and I, I'm happy to have this job because I pay, pay my bills and stuff, of course. But yeah, it's just crazy like how people think of like, I think the company and then just like the visual merchandising, like allure. I don't know. It's weird to me. I'm like, oh, wow. Like they're really good at making you believe it's cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, like, I'm like, it's, it's fast fashion. Like I, I think people just don't realize like, you know, I don't know. And they steal ideas and stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. No, totally. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. I will say, Jessica, specifically the brand that you work for, people don't know it's fast fashion. Like, I will always see, I mean, haven't for a while, but I would see a lot in the comments on the Clothes Horse Instagram where we'd be talking about fast fashion. People would be like, well, I don't shop there. I only shop at blank. Uh And it would be where you work. And I'd be like, oh, sorry to like burst your bubble but it's the same company as blank and they would be like wait what yeah. and i'm like yeah yeah, yeah i'm like <laughs> sorry because the, like the floor is hardwood and like there's some like unique like fixtures doesn't mean it's not fast fashion totally totally and working on the buying side for that company i will tell you that all the clothes that are sold at all three of their brands come from the same factories and cost roughly the same price. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so like it's not it's it's all fast fashion. But this company, I mean, it does a better job of presenting it, and it's really thanks to all the hard work and all the amazing creative people who work in the field doing visual merchandising. Because you know, you I I feel like I like grew up working for that company. So I didn't know mm-hmm. how other companies might merchandise their stores, right? I assumed every store had it, of every chain everywhere had this, you know, creative, smart, funny group of people who were going in every day and building fixtures and moving stuff around and like macrameing and all the other crazy shit we would do at our company. And what I found out when I left that company is that most most brands are just sending out a planogram, which is literally a diagram of where everything goes and any kind of props that you see on the floor are made somewhere else and shipped in. Like people aren't making oh, yeah. things. Like people 
who've never worked for that company get blown away when I tell them like, oh, we had a wood shop in the back of our store. We built most of our fixtures. Like we did indigo dyeing and macrame and all embroidery and we did all this stuff with wallpaper and screen printing and on and on and on. And they're like, wait, in every store? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, my display coordinator, like I'm so thankful for her because like I'm like, I could not. I can't use a circle saw. Like, I will <laughs> cut my finger off. Like, I don't know how you do it, but thank you. And while I met some unsavory people working in that for that company on the visual side, I mostly met some of the most talented, creative, stylish, interesting people that I've ever met. I'm still friends with them. They all are doing amazing things now. A lot of them have their own businesses, their own lines. You know, they're they're just taking over the world. I actually see a lot of the merchandising and display and aesthetics of the brands that we've worked for in other places now. And when I see it, I'm like, oh, they definitely have someone who used to work for that company running. You can always tell. You can always tell. You can always tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I appreciate that, you know, like just so many smart people. There was a period in like the late aughts when Forever 21 was really like they were printing their own money. Like this was the rise of fast fashion, right? And Forever 21 was starting to open all these like epic stores in empty department stores. And they were poaching away visual people from our company like right and left to try to get some of that magic. But it never worked because it was Forever 21 and they didn't they didn't do it right. They would never have like a word a word working room back there they couldn't they have too much shit they have too much shit although like let's be fair the company that we worked for i mean there was so much shit like i just i would dread when shipment showed up and i don't know about you two but the company that delivered our shipment the guy who did the delivery wouldn't help bring it in like he wouldn't even like put it on a hand truck and bring it in so not at all they just dump it in the yeah and then we'd all have to go outside and carry it in one by one while the guy watched us yeah okay so we should know that we always had to look like we worked there so we're doing this in like (laughs) clothes that we needed to wear to look presentable to like the ideal customer. It was oh so my god! I know it's true. I'd be out there in like a weird like dress and like heels or something, like unloading a truck, and then later I'd go climb a ladder and like have a drill and be putting like face outs up or something. Um, at one point, I was I want to say it was in, like maybe the last year or so that I was working as a visual merchandiser. I started hanging out with this guy. Uh, who lived in LA and he was out like I was always getting hurt at work like I would get splinters cuts scrapes I fall I mean it's like a dangerous job right especially when you're not dressed for it which we 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 weren't (laughs) we're getting proper training on how to use these things like it just we just had to be intuitive right right yeah no one was like here's some training on how to use a drill (laughs) like it was just like here's a table saw yeah or here's like oh my god just like the nail gun all that stuff anyway so he was like okay so visual merchandising is this job i'd never heard of but as far as i can tell you work really weird hours and have to get up super early in the morning and you get hurt all the time and i was like yeah that's a big part of it and he was really (laughs) he was really proud to say that another one of his friends was dating some girl and the guy was like yeah she used to go to work at like four in the morning and she's always got like 
Band-Aids all over her. And he was like, is she a visual merchandiser? And the guy was like, yeah, how did you guess that? And so <laughs> I always just That's I always just think that there are people going through the life who are like, the visual merchandiser, I don't know what you do, but I know you get hurt and you work weird yeah. hours. Because people would be like, I'd be like, sorry, I have to go home. I have to get up at four. People, there were people in my life for years who thought I was a baker. <laughs> my roommate would legitimately be partying still when I'm leaving oh, for work. God, yeah. yeah it was I the was, fucking worst. I worked at yeah. one actually as a visual manager briefly. And at that time, I was trying out online dating and I had that as like my occupation. And the amount of men who were like, what is that? What do you do? I'm like, it's it's not that. <laughs> like, it's pretty simple. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> like, no one knows. I feel like it's like a yeah. secret job that no one knows about, you know? And like, there's so many of us doing it and it's like so much work and like the fruits of our labor are evident every day, but it's sort of an invisible yeah. job. Well, we trick people into yeah. buying things. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, what did you like most about doing visual merchandising? Uh, well, I loved the planning out of everything. I'm a planner by nature. Um, I kind of have to be. I solely run my own shop. And honestly, I use a lot of knowledge I gained at this place. And I use that like every day in my store. Like, I am a professional at doing a floor set and making my store shoppable while I'm doing light construction. <laughs> it's a, it's like the best skill I've ever learned in my entire life. But yeah, I loved it. And I loved like putting outfits together and I loved doing the windows. So my merchandiser always just let me do the windows myself. Ah, oh, the windows are the best. And I never... And, like, my claim to fame is that I never had to change more than, like, three things ever. I loved it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I would say for me, like, I definitely love merchandising my house. You know, like, there are all these I things, right? I mean, I as I'm unpacking, I'm, like, square, round, square, <laughs> round, like, alternating colors and stuff. Hard, soft. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Checkerboard. Yeah, check, so many checkerboards. When I was thinking about that wall that got run into it by a truck and doing the quilts, I was picturing them in, like, a perfect checkerboard, which is totally what I did. And, by the way, folding those quilts was the worst. They so never fold the same way twice. No, they never do. Okay, so Jessica, what's your favorite thing about working in visual merchandising? Probably doing the dress forms is really mm, fun. Yeah. Um, I prefer dress forms over mannequins. I think mannequins can look really elegant or whatever, but I, I like pinning and doing dress forms. So that's really fun for me. Um, so I'll just take the forms to the back and work on them back there. And like, no one really bothers me. It's really that nice. nice. Um, so I like that. And then just like, I guess the problem solving part of it, like when I do have, you know, so much like shipment, I have to like fit or like rework something. And like at the end of the week when I don't like my working rack is like gone and like no one would know like the struggle I had that week, I can walk away and be like, wow, like I was like legit stressed how I would do this. And like, I don't know, somehow I did it like that feeling is really nice mm -hmm. and um yeah I mean kind of similar like the skills I've learned in my career so far and like currently where I'm now um that's definitely stuff I'm going to take to like when I have my own store one day and like 
I just know my visuals are going to look so great, but you'll like, totally use it to create a part. Me. Like, yeah, like that's the fun, the fun part mm-hmm. um, for me. So yeah, probably those, those things for sure. I can agree with that. Okay. So here's the other question. What's the worst part of it? Uh, being responsible for humans, because while you're trying to do all of this <laughs> shit that you're responsible for and like having maybe to work with a department manager, a store manager, regional people on top of all that, you're managing human beings in a workplace and you're still helping customers. I hated that shit. Mm-hmm. Like, and then I have to like yeah. get an entire shop merchandise for you. Okay, cool. Before 4 yeah, p.m. I agree. <laughs> I think that's another part of the job that people probably wouldn't realize is that often you're managing a team or like for the company we worked for, if you were the store merchandising manager, you were the partner of the store manager. So basically everyone who worked in the store also worked for you. And like the mm-hmm. store we worked in had like 40 employees and a lot of really young people, a lot of people who were coming to work hungover or coming in three hours late. A lot of big personalities. A lot of big personalities. And like th- there were conversations I've, I would have to have that I haven't had to have since like, hey, you need to set your alarm so you can come to work on time or like don't touch people's butts at work. You know, like, I was like, pressured into writing up one of my friends because they wanted to see if I would do it. Oh, that is classic. Yeah. That is, yeah. That friend listens to this podcast, so I cannot wait until they listen to this because they know that it was uh, complete bullshit, so. In my district... The district managers really discouraged anyone being friends on any level inside or at work. And you were supposed to just be like, I leave work and I don't think about these people. I have no relationship with them. But like some of the people I worked with, I would work alongside them more than I did. Like I spent more time with them than anyone else in my Mm -hmm. life at that point. And they were really cool. They encouraged friendships at my sh- at my store. Jealous. It was like, yeah. They at one point, I had a store manager who would like drive around the city looking to see if anyone was like hanging out. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's <laughs> Too much time I know this is the kind of insanity that we would deal with, though, because I mean, I know that this is the same way for a lot of people who work retail, especially if it's for a large chain, right? Like you've got your corporate headquarters somewhere, but the stores themselves are kind of like the wild, wild west, mm-hmm. like. No one's really, like, thinking about HR or, like, the repercussions of certain management issues. I was talking to a, a current coworker of mine, actually, who worked at Claire's, and she was telling me nightmarish stories about the, the management structure at Claire's and all the crazy stuff that they did. And honestly, it was giving me flashbacks to the company we worked for. So I was like, wait, so all retail companies – are just like totally off the rails when it comes to management. Yeah, it's really like you just never know what you're going to get. Like I'm fortunate where like my store manager is super sweet, but I've also worked with managers that are just like insane. So yeah, you really never know. You never know. Yeah. Well, what about you? Like what do you think is the hardest part of your job or the thing you like the least, Jessica? Um, Besides shipment, like just having too much stuff, um, <laughs> like we kind of talked about already, like besides that, I'd say 
yeah, the expectation to like have so much done by the end of the week or by a certain deadline, but also working majority of your shift during store hours when we're open. So I feel Mm -hmm. like that's the most annoying part for me because it never fails. I'll be working in like dining or whatever and whole all day it's dead over there. And so once I start, you know, taking stuff down, putting it on my cart, that's the minute that all the customers come and like need to buy plates all of a sudden. And it just, it never fails. And so that's (laughs) the most annoying part. And like, just me, like, you know, my pet peeve kind of, um, uh, besides that, yeah, I guess that'd be like my number one thing. Just like, just let me remerch this. If you need some, see something, just not ask for permission, but be like, Hey, like, can I grab that? And I'm like, absolutely take this plate. Like, but just to like, kind of like, while I'm on a ladder, someone like right at my knees. I'm just like, why? Why is this happening? Always. The moment Always. you're on the ladder, yeah. every single person. You're like, I can get it. It's fine. It's like, no, I'm going to grab it for you. That's why I offered. <laughs> like, yeah, just, just talk totally. to me. I'll grab it for you. But like, don't like try and reach around me. I don't know. It just drives me insane. But yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a tough one. I mean, it is. It's. I'm excited that we're talking about this because I suspect that a, a vast majority of the people who are going to hear this conversation one, did not know this job existed, and two, didn't realize how complicated it is because, you know, like we said, you're problem solving, you're working really hard, you're being creative, you're also dealing with customers, you're managing a team, and the time management is just so critical. Like, I would say, for me, the hardest part, the thing that I hated the most is that because I was salaried, I was expected to just work and work and work until the job was done, but it was physically impossible to ever get the job done because the job was just ongoing. And it was really hard for me to decide when it was time to go home. Yeah, no, totally. I feel like I definitely was like that at other jobs when I was like the salary manager. Um, But now they obviously don't want to give overtime to anyone because they don't want to pay like time and a half or whatever. um, (laughs) And they can afford it, which is insane. Yeah, but that's something that like, I've taken from Close Horse is like, don't work for free. Like, like, no, like, this mm-hmm. isn't your business. Like, they, if you were to quit tomorrow, they wouldn't care and they replace you. And so that's something I feel like I've learned as I've like grown up in retail, but also just like listening to other stories. And especially you, Amanda, like, I don't know, I just such inspiration, but like, oh, um, <laughs> no, but like, yeah, it's like, no, we all have so much value. Like, you don't need to work for free. And, like, if they want to pay you overtime, then fine. But if not, like, okay, I'll be back Monday, and I'm sure it'll be waiting for me. Like, I don't know. Just, yeah. Oh, totally. You know, I feel – and I, I feel like Michelle will agree with this, that the culture there, it, it gets into your head, and you mm-hmm. feel like you should work and work and work and possibly even work off the clock. And I remember pretty early into my time working for that company, maybe like two years in, I think I had just become a department manager, which meant I'd made that switch to salary. And I was, despite having to pay for childcare, working all the time. And the expectation was that like I would work all the time. And I, I was just feeling really stressed out and anxious about everything. And my friend Alana, who'd worked there for a long time, turned to me and said, you know, if Mitch, Mitch was our district manager who loved to give everybody back massages, Ew. which I did not need. I know, right? I just, I'm telling you, retail is the Wild West. So he, she said, you know, if, if Mitch found out tomorrow that either he could continue to expense his lunches 
uh, and fire you or you could stay working here and he wouldn't be able to have free lunch anymore, he would fire you without any hesitation. And I, I was like, whoa, that is like a really harsh thing to say. And she was like, Amanda, it's true. And at the time I was like, she doesn't know. This like this company cares about me. But like there was some point and I, I don't know when that point was where I was like, oh my God, Alana was so right. And I carry that with me. When you're talking about Mitch and his lunches, I'm like having flashbacks to after we would hire a bunch of temporary employees for that art festival I was talking about. We would literally have discussions on who we wanted to keep. And it got so personal that it was so uncomfortable to be a part of the conversation. That I just like oh tuned God, everything out and was just like, oh, I'm sorry. I have so much on my mind. I'm thinking about floor sets. I just make up something stupid. But it was so uncomfortable. Like you're getting down to like hairstyles and shit like that because it's insane. Being on brand. I know. God, <laughs> I just threw up a little bit. I had a store manager. I think it was actually our district manager who was with the company for a really long time. A different not one, not Mitch, the back massager, Ooh. a different guy. And he would say, listen, let people know that they're temporary for as long as possible so that they'll work harder. Even after you've made the decision to keep them on permanently, tell them they're still temporary. Yeah, they would tell us that too. It's so messed up. Or like you just stop putting them you have them on the schedule still, but you stop giving them hours. And if you do, it's an on-call shift, which is the biggest bullshit shift you could ever have. Oh, God, I know, I know. Anyone who doesn't know, you'd be on the schedule, but you technically weren't guaranteed to work, but you had to be available. And then you would call in that morning and find out if you were supposed to work. And if for some reason you had made other plans, you'd be written up because you were supposed to reserve this day that you might not even get to work. Which has happened to me. But just in case you did. That's horrible. Ugh. Jessica, have they used that on-call situation anywhere else you've worked? Um, Not that I can think of, no. I have, that's never happened to me and I would never do that as a manager. Um, so yeah, but that sounds awful. We would do the craziest shit to get around payroll, like only schedule people for four hours so that they wouldn't have to take a break so we would get like more time out of them oh yeah stuff like that for sure i did yeah. like even when i was at buffalo exchange I'd be like okay we'll schedule them you know right at their fifth hour so like they only have to take a 10 or whatever i forget now but yeah it was <laughs> totally horrible yeah oh yeah california labor laws were the worst like that yeah, they're really complicated. I've heard that from other people. I mean, Oregon, too, where I was living, we had, like, everybody had to get two. If you worked eight hours, you were entitled to a 30-minute break and two 15-minute breaks, or maybe it was an hour break. I don't know. But uh, the managers would do anything they could to get around giving people breaks, so they would schedule yeah, them. Yeah, so they wouldn't have to cover your, your, like, hour that you're off the floor, so everyone is constantly in a position. Yeah, because you have so few people to work with and you've got all that shipment to get out there. Uh, something that I forgot to bring up, this is another thing I really hated and actually like it disturbed me then and it disturbs me way more now, is all of the packaging and waste associated with shipment. Like I've talked about this in the past on here, but 
I just have so many flashbacks of in the morning, we got all the boxes out. Like there was there was a thing for a while they were doing where it was like we have shipment parties where the three people working would all work on shipments and we'd have like a goal for how many boxes we had to process because you know, it would come in in the box, you'd have to open it. Everything was individually plastic wrapped. It might have silica gels. There might be other packaging around it. If it was housewares, every button is like wrapped in something. Yes. It's Why really are the buttons wrapped in paper individually? Yeah. Who wrapped them in paper? <laughs> you know? Or it's like, like a pre pack of like a size run, and it's like, okay, it's in a box. And then in that box, it has all of like the filling. And then it has like, one giant plastic bag, and then within that bag, each individual garment is also wrapped. It's like, why? Just the one bag around it is more than enough to, like, protect it. That's what we're trying to do here. Because, like, so yeah. gross. Just and cut that out, and that's, like, half the plastic waste, at least. But you Exactly. Know, and we, we had these huge, clear plastic trash bags, which I guarantee you guys have the same mm-hmm. ones, because they bought them all from the same place. Because it's loss prevention. Yeah, totally. Do they explain that to you? Of course. So bad. Uh, don't get me started on the that company's obsession with stealing. I know. Uh, we would fill three, four, five, six of these big, huge, clear plastic trash bags with plastic every morning. And then there'd be more. Five days yeah. a week. It's so it's gross. It's so gross. And it's just like one store. And you would spend so much time unpackaging all this stuff. Then you have to put the security tags on. It was just like... Raise your hand if you've ever gotten the pin from a hard tag in the bottom of your shoe. Like, it's oh, yeah. just, like, so, so much happening to get this stuff out on the floor and so much trash. Instant trash. It never even really served mm-hmm. a purpose. That's another thing I think about a lot. I, I don't get to go to stores very often anymore, and nor do I have any interest. But every once in a while, if I'm at, like, a big chain i'm like looking around for clear plastic bags full of trash i'm like someone on the sales floor is processing right now i just know it (laughs) yeah i was at target the other day and they were processing and i was like i kind of miss this but kind of don't i love the completion Mm -hmm. of it yeah it would be nice to like break down the box at the end and be like look at this rack of stuff that i process (laughs) And now I have to place it all on the floor before 10. Oh, my God. They sent me 100 units, and I only have one side of a two-way, which will hold, like, 20. What am I going to do with it? Waterfall, hang it, and back stock. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So I have a question for both of you. Okay. Have you you watched the Lula Rowe documentary yet? Yes. No. I want to, though. Uh, You have to. You have to see it. So do you remember when they were complaining? And I'm not going to give too much away in the documentary mm-hmm. if you uh there's no spoilers here but anyway <laughs> when you were listening to them talk about their kit their retail kit when they got and complaining that they couldn't order certain things weren't you like thinking about allocation the whole time <laughs> like that company was like trying to tell them that they were each operating their own separate boutique and then one of the biggest critiques they had was that they couldn't choose like the patterns and stuff and i'm like sorry to use this word again I was like bitch that's what a store is like you don't know what's coming to you beforehand at all it's true it's true and I think that's really important like you could sometimes run reports that might tell you the name of it but like that wasn't going to tell you much sometimes you'd be like oh that sounds cute and then you get it and it would be like salmon colored cropped harem pants you know like it was it just would be it would be terrible um 
Yeah, the allocation part of it is really interesting and the blindness of it all. So I'll tell you, you know, I dealt with that for years where every day of shipment was a surprise. And then I moved on to the buying side. And when you're, I'm going to tell you right now, when you're in buying, you're not thinking about how this is all going to be displayed in the stores on any level. Uh, you're not thinking about like maybe, maybe on paper, it looks like you need 20,000 units, but the stores can only really you know, accommodate a total of like 2,000. You're not thinking about that. You're just like, this is what the spreadsheet tells me to do. And something that really blew my mind, I think this is going to blow your mind, Michelle, having worked for the same company. And I have a story about something you bought before, honestly. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay, so, so for years, you know, I'm working in the store. Everything that shows up is a surprise, and the quantities are always a surprise, and maybe... For six days straight, you'd get the same sweater, right? It would just keep piling up. Nothing ever made sense. And we never had any awareness of what was coming. It was never communicated to us. You might see pictures in the floor set book and be like, oh, I think we're going to get that thing. But that was it. And every Friday, the whole buying team would pull this report. It was called the Doc Report. It was a big spreadsheet of everything that was coming into stores in the next two weeks. And we would fill it out with comments like, this is going to be like this, and it's going to come with this, and another color is coming next month or whatever. We did, we'd spend hours doing this work. It never, it turns out, was shared with the store teams. Yeah, that'd be great to have. Thank you. Yeah. Right? That would right? have like, yes. saved a lot yes. of time. <laughs> so tell me about something that I bought. Oh, my God. <laughs> so when I first got hired in, I was the women's accessories team lead and my manager was freaking awesome at being a manager but not like merchandising and so store merchandiser saw that I had this talent and so basically I had to place all the women's shipment with her and Mm -hmm. there was this sparkly nubby scarf that would sell ah the striped nubby with lurex that's what it's called dude i literally had a meltdown in the break room once i cried about this and i'm like a tough as nails bitch dude and i cried about that scarf because there's too many of them and they wanted everything outstocked oh we should talk about outstocking because it's the worst thing ever the year i moved into buying the company made this decision that they wanted to outstock all the shoes, meaning yep. all the shoes would be out on the sales floor. And I was like, guys, I think this is a really bad idea as a person who literally just came from the store. And here's why. There's not enough space. People are going to steal them. People are going to buy two different sizes. They're going to be all over the floor. I like knew how it was going to go. Predictably, they were all over the floor. Yeah, They were all over the floor. If they were like tacked together, they no longer were. Uh, it was a mess. And like a year later, we were like, okay, shoes are going to go back into back stock. And I was like, yeah, assholes. I told you. <laughs> so the Stripe Nubby Scarf uh, was a number one seller in scarves, which is a category I manage. And we would sell just 10,000 units a month or something crazy like that. It cost, I want to say the most expensive it ever was, was $2.18. And it was $18 in the store. Yes, yes. And we sold them like bonkers. I don't know who was buying them. I've never seen one in the wild. I haven't either. Uh, What the hell? But we would sell 10,000 a month. So I would literally, the first week of every month, 
I would get out my spreadsheet and I would go color by color, tracking the sales and calculating the reorders. And I would place them all. Every other month, I would introduce a new color. I would send a list of Pantones for the new color to this vendor. The vendor was called Fairweather, in case you were wondering. And Fairweather would send me some samples of the colors that I'd mocked up, and then I would order them. And it was just, like, constant. Every week, it'd be like, number one scarf, the striped nubby with Lurex. And if you saw this scarf, you would know. You would know. You'd be like, I recognize this scarf. I've seen it. yeah. But, like I said, I've never seen it on a person. Where are they? I don't know, but I have styled that scarf a thousand different ways. I have no idea. Like, oh my gosh. We would get, periodically, I would get a picture from like a district or a visual, like a regional merchandiser who'd be like, look, one of our store staff turned it into a halter top. That was probably me. I'm sorry. It's probably you. Or used it as a belt. Or I mean, like, I... I was like, that's great. Like, sell even more of them. (laughs) But that's not a style I picked out. It was like a style that I inherited. And like the first order had come in just as I moved into that category. And it did really well. I got to tell you, whoever picked out that scarf was kind of a genius because I would have never, I would have seen that on the wall at the vendor's showroom and kept moving. Like it didn't. Yeah, it wasn't anything special. It was just a scarf. I think what made it appealing is that there was a lot of different colors in it. So you could just wear it with a basic. And that's where I always merchandised it, too. Because mm-hmm. I would hide them the same in the back of all the basics that were folded. Yeah, totally. They would go together. I feel like that was the direction. Like, that was back when we would have, like, big rounders in the store that were just basic tees. That we would like just a, dump like, everything on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I... You know, I obviously follow Gentle Vibes on Instagram, yeah. and I see as a as an alumna of this company. <laughs> I can hardly. Wait I for this. see what you've like. I see the merchandising techniques we were taught. Right, oh, yeah. a lot of the fixturing at the Treasure Island, the windows, all that stuff. I see that in your photos. So I was going to ask you what you've learned from your job. But I can see what you've learned. <laughs> well, it's merchandising that works. It's really fun. It really does. It really does. Yeah. What that company is really good at is like making things a, like, what was the word they use? Aspirational. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I just put a blanket on a mannequin yesterday and I'm like, I'm going to try to make blankets tops now. That's like what I do. <laughs> and it's funny because yeah. like. I will have customers come in and like totally pick up on that vibe. And there's friends that know me that know where I came from. But yeah, I really liked the juxtaposition of like the vintage furniture all like stacked Mm -hmm. on top of each other. And I think it's a merchandising like formula that works really well. Yeah, it does. Not going to lie. Like it makes everything seem attainable. It does. And it makes things seem fancier than they are. Like in the on the buying side of that business, we would always say like, oh, that looks expensive, you know, but it would be, you know, nothing we were buying was expensive. But like that was about right. Nothing at all. Like the nail polish yeah, is 25 just, cents. Yeah. But yeah, I just tried to like my house is like that, too, because I worked for that company for so long and they 
sold home furnishings and I got them for really cheap and it's really cute stuff. So yeah, my house is like merchandise like that too, because it's just what I know. <laughs> well, and it, it, it does work. So another thing that I forgot to mention is like, which you touched on is we would thrift a lot of the furniture and stuff that you would see in the store and then like paint it or sand it or put wallpaper on it. We, the budgets we had for the displays in that store were in- incredibly low. It'd be like, okay, we're going to give you $500 for this floor set. Um, the material list we sent you from Home Depot is $3,000 worth of stuff. So just like make it work. Could and you s- imagine that list now, how expensive it would oh be? Oh my God. I mean, I thought about it actually because I, I recently did a refixture for my current job and it was like it's all the tricks that you've learned right oh yeah and I ordered um some wood and sawhorse legs and uh I was like whoa like I couldn't believe how much a piece of three-quarter ply is right now so expensive and I went back to like whoa like how are all the people we used to work with well first off I mean to just tell you that like none of the people I worked with in visuals are there anymore there was like a mass a mega layoff exodus around the time I was working at Nasty Gal. Like they eliminated a lot of the visual. What happened? Because I didn't hear about it. They eliminated a, a vast majority of the regional and district roles. Um, okay. And a lot of people that you and I both know mutually lost their jobs. That's um, nuts. Like nuts. one of them is doing extremely well out here. Like... Yeah, like that's the thing is like I the people I know that used to work for this company all left it and have started their own thing and are doing insanely well. Oh yeah, trust me. Like anyone who's listening to this, we've had a lot of guests on the show who have small businesses or are brands you really admire who used to work for that company and there are even more that I haven't had on the show yet. Like everybody who worked in visual there was so smart and creative and cool and visionary. It's kind of crazy that we were all driving around back alleys looking for used Found pallets. furniture. Yeah, found <laughs> furniture. And she, like at one point, my boss emailed me and was like, just go out and look in alleys for pallets. That'll help you get some of your wood for the Treasure Island. They I mean, asked is- to borrow some of my furniture from my oh. house once because I have all this mid-century shit. They're uh-huh. like we could just borrow it for three months. I'm like, dude, that's my coffee table. What the hell? Yeah. And it would get gross. They'd f- someone would test out all the nail polish on it or something. All of the nail polish. <laughs> all yeah. The that's nail the polish thing destroyed. too. Like, oh I used to have a party house and like, you know, everyone from work hung out together and sometimes managers would come and then like, yeah, when floor sets would come around, they'd be like, Hey, can we borrow that? I'm like, no dude. Like, I have roommates. Like, oh, we need this frame. This will be perfect. It's like, what are you talking about? For my job, that is a company that, trust me, has like $100 million in the bank. Yeah, sure, I'll loan it to you. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what about you, Jessica? What have you learned so far that you think you're going to – I mean, like you said, you're doing this to start your own business. What do you think you're going to transfer into that? Um, I think a lot of the display, like I kind of mentioned earlier, like just how I feel like any job I've had so far, like gives me a new perspective on like even just how to merchandise something. Um, so I think like I'm going to take that with me. Definitely time management. Um, and just like, 
I don't know, I guess also like being a leader, like right now I just have technically my display coordinator is the only person who like, I, I'm actually like their boss. Um, but really having like that relationship and like being able to ask for like, um, for like what I need from them and like vice versa, being able to like be transparent and just be like, Hey, like not, am I being a good boss, but like, how do you feel? And like, I don't know, I feel like that's just something that previous jobs, like they didn't really care about that. And Mm -hmm. that's one good thing. It's like, I just have one person that I work with all the time and just really like growing that relationship and like, yeah, just like supporting each other. Um, Because I feel like that's really what it's going to be when I do eventually start my own business. It's going to be like me and then maybe one other person (laughs) when I first start. So, um, (laughs) yeah. So, yeah, just being able to work with different personalities and, um, yeah, meet deadlines too. I feel like that's really big. Yeah, you'll love the meet the deadline part of all that. It's true. It's true. Like, I feel like every job I've had since then, everybody's always really impressed by like my sense of urgency and how I'm on top of it. And it, it's because in that job, not getting it, like not being on top of things is not an option. Yeah, I know. I like, you know, right now we have to post like weekly progress photos, which is fine. Like, I don't mind doing that. Like, I, whatever, you know, it's part of the job. But, like, I'll go into the shared file and, like, it'll have each store number and whatnot. And, like, you can look at other people's photos and I look at that because I'm still new and I'm just, like, trying to still figure stuff out. But um, I'll look on there and, like, half the stores won't have their photos posted by, like, the due date. Mm. And I'm, like, um... Uh, it's just three photos. <laughs> who, you guys aren't going to get in trouble? <laughs> like, uh, what, what's going on? Like, I don't know. Like, and I feel like they're just impressed with that, with, like, with me, like... My district manager was like, oh, you're doing so great, being an outside hire, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, thank you. But I'm also kind of like, in my head, I'm like, I'm just doing, like, not the minimum because I, like, enjoy being creative and stuff. But it's like, this is, like, the expectation. And I don't want to get in trouble either. So I don't know. It's just, like, this weird thing that it's, like, so all these expectations. But it's also, like, I don't know. I just don't want to. I just want to do my job, clock out, and then just have a life, too. And it's just, I don't know. It's like second nature to me, but I feel like a lot of people just don't, I don't know, can get away with like not turning in their photos on time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is something that is is great for you as you shift into owning your own business because you're going to have that self, that self-inflicted accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I think that's really important. Don't you just have to do this? I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would say for me, the thing, I mean, I learned a lot of stuff while I was working as a visual merchandiser, like so much stuff that has shaped things I've done since then. But the one thing that I super learned was about managing people and managing different kinds of personalities and kind of letting some of it roll off my back sometimes Mm -hmm. and, you know, learning how to develop people and making that a priority. Because like, like you mentioned, I, I worked with a lot of different kinds of people and I there's not one management style that you can adopt and and sufficiently manage all those people and make them feel good about being at work and you know give them the time and the training and development that they need so you have to learn really fast how to work with a lot of different people and i definitely made mistakes i blew some situations for sure and learned from them and moved on but it was really really hard i remember one one person who worked on my team who actually is friends with another friend of mine, so I won't mention his name, he sent a an email to the store manager saying that he thought, of course, the store manager showed me this email immediately. He thought that I 
don't care about lower class people because I would make them do perfect closes all the time. And if I really cared about lower class people, he kept saying lower class people, which really made me laugh. If I really cared about lower class people, I would come and do the perfect clothes myself. And that really, like, I just can't, uh, I still am upset about it, to be honest, because I was like, dude, I worked like 80 hours this week. Don't tell me that I don't care about lower class people. You and this guy, his his like uncle owned the Portland Trailblazers. Is if we're going to talk about class, <laughs> you know? Oh my god! <laughs> Was he talking about just like maybe people who don't have a position? Because that makes zero sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what he meant. But like, oh okay. It, I was like, I felt really bad at first that I was like, do all the people in the store think that I don't care about them as people? It's just like, I'm already working from like six in the morning till 6 p.m. I can't come back at 10 and close. And I'm only having them do the perfect clothes because I have to take those photos tomorrow. You know, and then like, it's just one more thing you have to worry about on top of everything. Else. I know. It's like, whether or not someone thinks you're mean. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a really, I mean, I'm actually like a, I, I have been told many times in my career that I would be more successful if I cared less about the people who work for me. Um, because Same. I definitely err on the side of caring. So that was something for me where I was like, I took that really to heart where I was like, do people think I'm uncaring? And I think it made me like too nice after a while and too permissive because I didn't want people to think I was didn't care about so-called lower class employees. Oh, my God. No, that's something that I'm trying to do more, especially now. Like I have so much I have to do. I have to like ask for help, like whether it's the person in the fitting room or the cash wrap, like helping me hang stuff, whatever it is. I always make sure I say thank you and like, but like. I appreciate it before I walk away because I feel like I'll get in my head about like I have this to do this I have like this list of stuff I have to do and so I'm like okay wait, just pause and be like thank you and like when I go back in 20 minutes and like take it from them because they like it's hung up be like thanks again for that and then like running away pretty much because um, it's like yeah and then I'm like am I being mean I'm like I'm not being mean or like do I look like I'm upset because I feel like I'm always like have like not a frown, but like my <laughs> eyes are always just like thinking of the next thing. And like to, I don't know, to these, you know, 18 year olds, this might be their first job. I kind of have to tell myself like, Hey, like stop and feel like, like say thank you sometimes. <laughs> Cause like, yeah, it just, there's just so much going on. And I remember being that 18 year old, like at my first job and being like, Oh my gosh, am I doing a good job? You know, I just like, yeah, I don't know where I was going <laughs> with that, but yeah, always making sure I like stop and like tell them like, Hey, like, thanks so much. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great cuz you don't you don't hear a lot of thanks. And I also, you know, it's it's a tough position to be in. I feel like I probably looked all the time like I was mean or in a bad mood, but I was just like there was so much to think about at any given moment and I feel like I was just this like whirling dervish. Yeah. It's like I'm not I'm not in a bad mood, I swear. At one point, I got a Fitbit, and I looked down, and I was walking, like, 25,000 steps a day at work. You know? Like, I was just, like, constantly, like, moving around. Like stomping around the store. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I totally got bunions. The worst. And, yeah, I, th I just feel like I learned a lot about how to deal with the crisis, feel overwhelmed, and not let that trickle down to my team. Well, do you guys have anything you want to add? This has been so fun. I know we have to put Michelle to bed soon. I don't know. I guess visual merchandising, I would say if you're looking for a retail job, is probably the best job in retail. So definitely go for it. 100%. <laughs> oh, 
Definitely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I know we talked about how hard it is, but guess what? Retail is hard, and at least sometimes you get to go in the back and pin outfits yeah. on dress forms. You don't have to deal with as many customers. You still have to deal with customers, but not as many. It's fun. It's creative. Um, and, yeah, hopefully, like we said, all the different skills that you may learn at like crazy companies you could take with you to your next um, opportunity whatnot i always wanted to work at the store you worked at oh yeah totally it always, always. seemed like fancier merchandising bigger budget yeah i mean i literally interviewed like four times before i got it so i <laughs> totally get it did they make you do an inspiration project um my the interview i had this last time it was on zoom oh weird um okay and i had to do um like kind of like outfit polls but like I had to like go on the website and like clip things. So kind of, but I feel like that was just the equivalent to like being in a store and pulling outfits. So, but I feel like it was just more time intensive. Yeah. Yeah. Like internal hiring with this company. They make you do an inspiration project. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Even if you've worked there before and you're coming back. Oh yeah. Mine was the last one I did was suspiciously lost for six months. And then what? when I got it back, they were like, oh, someone had sent it to home office because it was so good. And I was like, then how come I didn't get the fucking job? Like, what the mm. hell? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so the concept that I had, you know, based my project on was rolled out two years later. Oh, I am not surprised. <laughs> Those ideas swirl around like that. And yeah, I mean, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but Reformation uh, is infamous in L.A. Oh, my gosh. Amanda, I interviewed for them. Did you have to do a project? I did. It was for their um, their vintage department, so I guess, like, super small. I don't know. But literally, they, they had me do, like, a lookbook of things I would buy for the store. Literally, I forget now, but it was, like, 50 items. Um, but, like, it took me a long time, and, of course, like, I didn't get the job, but... Yeah, I was just like, this is stupid. And, like, I think I this was kind of recent, like, maybe a year ago. And it was after you had mentioned this on Close Horse about, like, they that's what they're, like, known for. And I was like, damn it, like, I'm gonna, still going to do it because I want the job. But, like, if I don't get the job, it's, like, my own fault for doing it. But, like, I, I know better, but I'm still going to do it because I have to. <laughs> it's a fun way of spending an afternoon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, like... They are infamous in LA. I so I'm one of my few friends who has not interviewed there. Um, and when I say friends, like both my like closer friends and like people who I've worked with, everybody who's worked at most of the places I've worked at has interviewed with Reformation. It always involves some epic project, sometimes last minute, and then being ghosted. <laughs> and I like I have a few friends who saw their project played out on the website like six, eight months later. So I would cry. It's just like they're just – I mean, I have a hard time imagining that they've gotten any less toxic, but I've definitely seen them get better pre- press late- lately, so I don't really know. So I'm going to tell you guys about – I totally just thought of this. Um, after I left my super toxic feminist startup job – and before I went back to the East Coast to work for the same parent company again, working for uh, a new brand they were launching, 
I interviewed with this company. It's so bizarre. You guys have never heard of it. You'll never buy anything there. You're so not the customer. It was this weird website that sold like super fast fashion that basically the owner of the company, who is this blonde woman, it was based in Salt Lake City, she would go onto this weird portal every day where you could just, it was just all like stuff that had just arrived from China and you would just pick the stuff you liked and order it um, and it would come and it was like brandless and it was just like really cheap fast fashion. And they were looking for someone to take over that job so that she could like spend more time with her family. So I was like, okay, you know what? Let's just see this. I, you know, the the recruiter was really nice. I was like, sure. So they interviewed me a couple times. I still didn't actually get to interview with the owners yet. It was really weird. I was interviewing with everyone else. And then they had me do this project where I had to log into that portal. And I had, this is like, sounds like a game show, okay? I had one hour. They set a timer. This is virtual, though, because I was like in Portland. They're in Salt Lake. I had one hour to go into this portal and build an assortment of as many products as possible that I thought would sell for them. Because one of the keys, and this is so dark, is that I had to be able to pick out stuff as fast as possible because they would be placing like hundreds or thousands of styles every week to sell on this website that as far as I could tell only sold to blonde women who wore big hats and were like fake boho. Weird. Yeah, it was really, really weird. Uh, ultimately, I was like, I need to drop out of this. And they were really upset. And I was like, guys, come on. You've interviewed me like seven times. You maybe do this weird game show thing. You she probably some... had already quit. And they did this to you seven times until they filled the position, to be <laughs> honest. No, that's what it sounds like. I went on a nightmare interview. Because I used to be a florist in a different life, too. I've lived every life. Um so I went on this interview at this florist in LA and it was right before Valentine's day. And I was just going to be a temp employee. They had me work for three hours making small arrangements for them. And at one point I just like realized that they were using me as free labor and I just walked away. And at this point I was like staying with family over in Santa Clarita and I didn't drive. So I had to get back to union station to take a train. And by the time I gotten back to Santa Clarita, my cousin goes, the florist just called and asked what happened to you. She's really worried that you come back. And I was like, told her all about the interview and she just opened a bottle of wine and she's like, you're not going to work there. <laughs> yeah. So sketchy. Yeah. Uh, don't work for free. And I almost missed the train and had to sleep in Union oh, Station no. downtown. But nightmare interviews can be a whole other podcast episode, honestly. Seriously. Seriously. Because I feel like every time I hear someone's story, like seven more stories of bad interviews come out about like free work they did or inappropriate things or like one friend was interviewed by someone who was like noticeably intoxicated. Um, the sheer volume of like callbacks and projects. Like I honestly, when I got hired at Nasty Gal, I had to do two separate projects because the CEO was concerned that coming since I came from the company that we've all worked for that I might have bad taste. Oh my God. They buy her stuff. <laughs> it's like so ridiculous yeah so the lady who said that the story i worked for inspired her 
wanted to me to do a third interview in this actual store on the floor just so she could see how I worked with employees and like customers and it's like see how I would run the show and I was like so you want me to do what? a shift for free <laughs> yeah and then she ended up emailing me like the next day and was like oh actually like we're going with like a different direction I was like you fine like I didn't want to work for free anyway but I was like what like who asks that like yeah yeah let's see how these complete strangers react to you exactly and when right? and when yeah. I hear about like oh, we're having this, like, shortage of workers and people don't want to take jobs. I'm like, it's because of shit like this. Like, even, you know, Dustin's been on all kinds of interviews through the pandemic, and some of them were, like, three, four interviews. And, I mean, I've gone through that, too, in my career. And I'm like, it shouldn't take three months of conversations for you to decide to hire me or a whole bunch of free work from me. Or Not like, at all. It's just ridiculous. Like to even be at the level I'm at in my career and have to do projects is insane. And I've had to where they're like, we here, we're going to give you a bunch of our reports and we want you to tell us what this all means and like give your recommendations for our business. And I'm like, wait, for free? <laughs> Like, uh, You're like I'm not a business consultant. You want to be a consultant? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I am, but I get paid yeah. for that. So, like, if you're gonna like want me to do that, we can talk about a rate. But yeah, I think more and more of us just need to put our foot down and be like, no, I'm not gonna come and make flower arrangements yeah. for you. No, I'm not gonna go onto this weird website and have to pick out as many styles to buy as possible in a one wi- hour window while you time me, like. What it, like no, none of us are doing any of this. Either you're gonna hire us or you're not, and we're exactly. all gonna Yeah. And unfortunately it's just a lesson you have to learn, I feel like, as you grow in your career. Cause like when I was at Buffalo Exchange, I would work like ten hour days, get paid eight hours because I was mm-hmm. salary. And like now I'm like, no, I'm clocking out, I'm leaving. But still in the back of my head, there's days where I'm just like, Oh, like ten more minutes, like it's okay. And like I have to tell myself, like, no, you can't do that. And it's just yeah, it's just something you learn. I don't know. Well, because they see you doing those extra 10 minutes and they think that they can take advantage of like another 40 minutes out of you. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. It's really just, yeah, you have to be the one to be like, no, I'm leaving. Bye. And I remember as as the store merchandising manager being told by my DM that I had to have a conversation with another one of our salaried employees who was a department manager about how they were only working 40 hours a week. Oh, my God. How embarrassing. (laughs) I know. I know. How embarrassing. How embarrassing for that person to ask you to do that. I know. They were like, well, just tell them, like, you feel like they're not really committed to the job. And it was like, man, it's so hard when you're in, like, a leadership role and, like, you know that what's coming from the top is bullshit and wrong. And yet, like, you're feeling this pressure to deliver that message. And you're like, what what am I going to do? So I literally went to that person. I was like, listen, the district manager told me to tell you that uh, he he doesn't like it that you only work 40 hours a week. And I think it's bullshit. But could you like at least when they're here, pretend to work more than that? (laughs) They were like, sure. (laughs) It's cool that you leveled with them because that is like crazy. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was super fun. And I can't wait for everybody to learn all about what visual merchandising is. Yeah, thank you for reaching out. And if you're in the Ypsilanti area, I'll hire you and teach you everything I know. (laughs) Thanks again to Michelle and Jessica for spending two hours, maybe a little bit more, across three time zones talking to me about the highs and lows of visual merchandising. 
I'll be sharing the links to both of their vintage shops in the show notes, so please go check them out, give them a follow, all those good things. After more than a year and a half of sharing stories and information about fast fashion here on the podcast and on Instagram, literally every day, of thinking about fast fashion and consumerism for hours and hours and hours, it's easy now to see all of the ways fast fashion sort of like reveals itself in our stories of visual merchandising. There's the endless rapid flow of inventory, just product coming in constantly, unpredictably, but endlessly. I guess that's the predictable part of it all. There's the moving products from place to place to yet another place all in one week because so many new items just keep arriving. That steady flow of newness is, that's, the core of fast fashion there, right? Something that we didn't mention in here too is that that stuff would go to markdown really, really fast, sometimes in just a few weeks, sometimes a little bit longer if it was a stronger style. But the route, the velocity with which product moved through those stores and through all of our little merchandising moves, it was fast. What else? The packaging waste, the huge see-through plastic bags of more plastic bags and more plastic bags. Why are the buttons wrapped in plastic or paper? I don't know. There was the payroll budget. It gets cut year after year after year in order to eke out just a little bit more profit for shareholders and pay a few more executive bonuses. One thing that I noticed, I mean, and because I worked for this company for 10 years, I got to see this shift really play out, is that every year, store managers, you know, district managers, et cetera, they would be given a budget for payroll. It came obviously from the home office. You know, it started with the CFO and sort of filtered its way down there, right? So they'd get a number for a year. And if they all hit that or stayed below it, then the next year it would be a little bit lower. And then the next year, a little bit lower than that. In the same way that a company, a retail company is expected to have higher sales year over year over year, more profit each year, just a little bit more, payroll is expected to shrink year over year over year. And so you end up, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing this. Maybe now isn't a great example because we know that a lot of companies are having shortages, especially in retail and service. But think about even like three years ago in the before times, you probably noticed a lot less people working in the stores you were shopping in. I know I noticed it. It seemed even worse than when I was working in a store. What else? I mean, along those lines, there's the lack of concern for workers' health and safety. That's a signature of fast fashion, right? There's that feeling as an employee of being disposable, no matter how hard you work, how much time you put in off the clock, or all those weeks you worked 50, 60, 70 hours, you're still disposable. I'm glad we talked about visual merchandising, particularly in a fast fashion company, because I think it really illustrates that the problems we talk about with worker treatment, the way garment workers are treated both abroad and here in the United States, that's just one set of workers that this industry exploits and abuses. Here in the United States or where you are in Canada or the UK or elsewhere, there are laws that prevent 
these fast fashion companies from exploiting these workers to the, the extent they would like to in the way they do overseas where the laws are a lot more lax around that kind of stuff. This is an industry that does not care about people. It, it also doesn't care about the planet. As I've said before, I'll say it again, fast fashion is a business model that operates with disregard for humans and the planet. It's not a price point. It's not an aesthetic. It's a way of doing business. My own job as a visual merchandiser for that big fast fashion company ended in a fully unethical and probably illegal way. And you're probably not surprised to hear that, right? What happened? Well, you know, I've been working for this company for 10 years. I posted on Facebook, which is, you know, my personal life really should have nothing to do with work. I posted on Facebook that I was interested in someday moving to LA because I just visited there with a friend and I was smitten. And I will tell you, I still maintain that LA is the most magical city in the United States. If you've got a more magical city, I want you to tell me about it because I want to visit. I want magical cities. So yeah, I posted on Facebook that I was interested in moving to LA someday. I just loved it so much. Well, at the same time, I mean, I mentioned how store merchandising manager, any merchandising role really in stores is just so highly sought after. And there was another woman who worked in the store with me who had been the merchandising manager at another store, a smaller one. She left to go to school or that was her official reason, but really she wanted to go to Costa Rica for a month or two and she wouldn't have been able to take that time off. You know, fast fashion hates to give you a vacation, okay? <laughs> you get two weeks max, really. So she left. She said she was going back to school, you know, quit her job, all of that. Well, when she got back, because she wasn't going to school, she was just going to Costa Rica, her job had been filled. So she started working at my store, but there was no merchandising job for her there. And She wanted that job back so badly. So when she saw that post that I made on Facebook about moving to L.A. someday, she sent it to my boss. And I don't know what happened in between that happening and what happened next, but it all all feels like it was a bad idea on their end, whatever happened, because my boss promptly came to Portland with the district manager dragged me into the office where they forced me to write out my notice. Yes, they forced me to quit. I pleaded to have at least three months. I mean, I had a family to support. And all I had done was expressed interest in someday living in LA, which is a normal human thing to do. I'd worked for the company for 10 years. I just have to say that again. And They forced me to give my notice just a few weeks before I was about to receive my 10-year bonus, which had been this light at the end of the tunnel that would unlock new life options for me, whether it was moving to LA or getting a car. I don't even know. Something, right? I should have sued the company. But instead, I got a job as a buyer at ModCloth and I moved to LA and Everything in my life was a lot better. Was it a blessing that they forced me to quit? Oh, hell no. It was still wrong. It was still unethical. And like I said, it was probably illegal. 
But I'm the kind of person who can really gaslight myself into blaming myself for things like that. And I, I think I just asked myself, urged myself to just forget it and be glad that I had landed on my feet. In fact, a year or two later, the boss who had dragged me into that office and forced me while I cried to write out my notice sent me a drunk message on Instagram apologizing for what he'd done, knowing that it was wrong. And I, for a moment, didn't know what he was talking about. That's how great I am at gaslighting myself. Don't be like me. Don't gaslight yourself. A long time ago, we had a hotline call here on the podcast from a listener who talked about her experience working for a terrible hashtag girl boss at a clean skincare company. And she said something in that call that has stuck with me since then that I think about quite a bit. She talked about being so desperate for that job and the boss knowing it and sort of that therefore leaving that door open to treat her however she wanted. I feel like I've been too desperate for a job for too long. I've brushed off illegal and unethical treatment because I just needed a job so badly. I know this is a feeling a lot of you can relate to. I thought that I didn't deserve better because that's just how it was when you needed a job. I maybe thought that work was just like that, that we gave up our rights to fairness and respect merely by accepting a paycheck. And working in fast fashion just sort of reinforced that constantly. I know I've mentioned on the pod in the past the executive at my first buying job who threw a rolling rack of scarves at me and was screaming at me. I've worked so many other places where people thought it was okay to come and yell at employees or fat shame them or just generally be assholes. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but the thought of yelling at someone at work is just, I would never do it. It's not okay, much less throwing something at them, humiliating them picking apart their bodies. I declare that in 2022, we will no longer be desperate for work. We will know and we will own the truth. And that truth is that they need us more than we need them, despite all of the times over the years that they tricked us into believing otherwise. We will not allow bosses to humiliate workers or yell at them or force them to quit their jobs that they really need to survive. We will not accept this antiquated idea that we belong to our employers, that we are their possessions until they no longer want us, that they can just dispose of us as they see fit. That will no longer happen. This is the end of all of that. Not only will we demand better and settle for nothing less, we will remind those around us, all those people we care about, that they too shall demand better and settle for nothing less. That's how real change happens, right? When a critical mass of us are moving in unison, leaving the bad jobs, holding employers accountable, suing your employer if they force you to quit, please do better than me. We'll also support those around us through tough times and help them 
make better decisions and prop them up and remind them that they deserve better than all of this too, that the only person that they belong to is themselves. In the next episode, I'll begin sharing audio essays from the community around work and quitting our jobs. I think we're all going to get pretty excited and inspired. I can't wait. I really believe that we are in the early days of a massive sea change around work and consumerism, a move toward a more just, equitable, and healthy world. I hope you believe the same thing because we're all in this together And I truly believe, I want you to believe too, that we can accomplish anything we decide to do together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, research, hosted, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you're enjoying yourself, you know what I'm going to say. Please leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. If you'd like to support my work, please check out patreon.com slash podcast. And of course, as always, thank you to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.